Hey, you're a podcaster. I'm not. Are too. I don't know what you're talking about. You're on a podcast right now. I'm not. Ugh. Let's just start the show. Welcome to Still Dead. I'm researcher Kelly Jones of Southern Fried Scholar. And I'm story expert Lonnie Diane Rich of Chipperish Media. And we're here today to talk about Angel, Season 1, Episodes 1, 2, and 3, City of, Lonely Hearts, and In the Dark. We are covering three episodes of Angel in this one episode of Still Dead, and two of them are watchers, one is a skipper. So what is a watcher? Those are the episodes that you actually need to watch. And the skippers are the ones you really don't need to watch. It's actually fairly simple. All right, let's raise the stakes. In City of, Angel moves to Los Angeles, where he prefers to be alone, dusting vampires and brooding, until he meets Doyle, a fast-talking half-demon who has visions of people only Angel can save, sent by the powers that be. Angel likes to work alone, but when Doyle sends him to protect a wannabe starlet who's being harassed by a vampire producer named Russell Winters, Angel takes the case. As he's helping Tina, he bumps into Cordelia, who's in Los Angeles pursuing the dream. When Winters kills Tina and sets his sights on Cordelia, Angel takes it personally and busts in a meeting between Winters and his lawyers from the shadowy firm Wolfham and Hart. He throws Winters out the window and returns back to his apartment, which happens to come with a set of offices upstairs. Cordelia decides he needs to open up a detective agency, take money from the clients who can pay, and hire her on as his office manager. All right, so City of, pretty good episode, right? Yeah, it was. It was a pretty good pilot. Yeah, I liked it a lot. I mean, we have to watch it because it's a pilot, yep. because it sets up everything up. But I think that overall, it's just it's a, it's a pretty good episode. It stands up on its own. So when we talk about these episodes, we're going to talk about them in chunks. And the first section that we're going to do is moments of perfect happiness. So Kelly, what were some moments of perfect happiness for you in this episode? Well, I liked it when Doyle was telling Angel about his visions. And Angel asked, why you? Like, why are you the demon to carry these visions? And Doyle mm -hmm. said, we all have something to atone for. And it felt like they were setting up a thesis statement right at the beginning. Like, is this what Angel's going to be about? Atonement for his past sins? I don't know, because we're not yeah. doing spoilers, but it's an interesting <laughs> question. It is an interesting question. At this point, I'm not sure Angel really knows what it's about just yet. Um, there comes a point in the series later on, no spoilers, when Angel has a line that kind of sums up what I think the, the series is about. But for right now, they're working with what they got, what they you know imported over from Buffy, which is the guilt-ridden vampire with a soul thing, you know? Yeah. So I think that they're kind of they're kind of playing with different ideas about what it could be about. But the idea that Doyle also has things to atone for, that he can kind of understand, you know, that perspective sort of sets up a, um, a community here, you know, of, of people who have things to atone for. So I think that that's, you know, it's kind of, it's not a bad place to start. No, it's not. It's not a bad place to start. Um, and it also gives us an interesting perspective on Cordelia. Yes which is one of my other moments of perfect happiness because we get Cordelia. Yes. And I love how she's at the Hollywood party and she just lies about her success. <laughs> and when she meets Angel, she's like, so are you still 
girl, but <laughs> you're not evil and here to bite people. Oh, good. And it's just like, it's so Cordelia. And she also doesn't hang all over Angel. You know, she's at that party with her own agenda. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And I really, really like that. And then later in the episode, when she gets invited to Russell's house, she's kind of sharing some of her vulnerability, but she's smart enough to know there's a catch when he offers to help her. Yeah. And she says, I finally get invited to a nice place with no mirrors and lots of curtains. And hey, you're a vampire. Like, it was was just so funny how quickly she caught on to that and was, you know, not to be fooled. Yeah, like that. She's like, I'm from Sunnydale. We have our own hell mouth. I know what I'm talking about. Right. (laughs) Which I think is really great. And I love that we have Cordelia, you know, she's in that crappy apartment. You know, she is, um, she's, she comes from, you know, the character as it was in Buffy was for the most part, for most of the run of Buffy, the spoiled princess, right? You know, her parents were rich. She had everything. She had nice cars. She had nice clothes, you know, and, um, and while Cordelia was definitely layered, you know, um, she kind of had that privileged, you know, spoiled princess kind of thing going on. And so now we have her moving into this space where she doesn't have everything under control where it doesn't come as easily to her as it has in the past where she has to really work for everything and she's living in this terrible apartment she has to steal food she's starving it's a really nice turn for her and it brings in this level of vulnerability to Cordelia which I think is a really nice way of sort of transitioning her you know into the Cordelia that she's going to be you know in the run of Angel which is very different from the Cordelia that she was in Buffy but she's had this transition you know she's graduated from high school and now things are harder and she's got more layers and more depth um, and more understanding and less privilege which I really like Um, and Russell's I think interest in Cordelia is a really nice turn to make all of this personal for Angel you know he sees Cordelia again it's always nice to see Cordelia you know he has that wonderful thing where she's I'm so glad she's grown as a person you know Um, and and part of that is is ironic but still you know um, I I think it's, it's a really nice way of of, of pulling Angel into the world, which is which is kind of what this episode is about, is about how Angel, when he's not connected to Buffy, like being connected to Buffy is the only thing that pulled him into the world. And now that he's not connected to her anymore, he's sort of separating himself. And that's what Doyle, you know, gives him the big speech about at the beginning of the episode. So we have Angel kind of being pulled back into the world through Cordelia. Yeah. And, and it also gives us this sort of great, change for Cordelia like you were talking about she goes from the mean girl Mm -hmm. you know that high school mean girl to now literally creating a job for herself that consists of helping people right and and like it's just I'm gonna be your office manager (laughs) right and she's just like okay I'm gonna work here now and we're gonna help people and you know we're gonna charge fees for (laughs) for for doing this But it, it's just a great shift of place for her, you know, yeah. and kind of her place in the world and her place in the show. Um, and, and I always love seeing Cordelia. So that makes me really happy. Mm-hmm. But my favorite line, my favorite line in this episode was when Angel crashed the lawyer's office to oh, get yeah. to Winters. Mm-hmm. And Winters is, you know, kind of giving his evil monologue speech. And he's like, I can do anything I want. And Angel just completely deadpan says, can you fly? And then throws him out of the window <laughs> where he burns up on the way down. And then he says, 
Guess not. Guess not. Right. (laughs) So great. (laughs) It's so great because Angel walks in there, you know, and he is and you think he's outmatched. Right. Russell has all this money. He has all this power. He has this whole, you know, room full of lawyers who are going to make sure that he never, ever, you know, spends a moment in prison or in any kind of punishment at all. You know, and you feel like Angel is is, you know, out of his depth, like he's just there's no way he's going to win. But he's not playing their game. He's not going to win at their game, but he's not playing their game, you know, and he just kicks him out of the thing. And he's so badass. And it shows my favorite side of Angel. Like, I am not a big fan of the broody, guilt-ridden, you know, just sitting there and and feeling really bad about stuff, Angel, you know? (laughs) But this kick-ass, give-no-fucks Angel, like, I am in. I love that guy. And he is so cocky. I love that where he takes the business card that Lindsay, the lawyer, who we will be discussing in in much detail, (laughs) like, um, maybe not in this episode, but no no real spoilers, but we're going to see that guy again. Um, And uh, when he takes the, the uh, business card and just puts it in his pocket, pats his chest, and moves on out. And everybody's just standing there like <laughs> they don't even know what to do. It is a completely different game Angel is playing from what these guys are doing. But it's a really interesting conflict engine that's being set up as as we set up this this big bad, this shadowy law firm of Wolferman Hart, um, which is really great. Yeah, it is. And and I think it's and in this episode, you know, we kind of get this introduction of Angel as Batman, mm-hmm. which is funny, you know, kind of in a way, but but like you, I prefer the badass swagger angel. Yes. You know, yes. Angel as Angel with swagger, like that is what I come to the show for. Yeah. Um and we got another great line from him about this, um, when Doyle was kind of trying to get Angel to open up and <laughs> He said, look, I don't want to share my feelings. I want to find the guy who killed Tina and look him in the eye. And Doyle said, then what? And Angel said, then I'm going to share my feelings. Right. <laughs> it was just like this. I like that I love that. Yeah, I had that in my notes as one of my favorite lines, too. <laughs> then I'm going to share my feelings. That's the Angel I like. I like Angel when he's pissed off. You know, yeah. I don't want any moments of perfect happiness yeah. for Angel. I just want him no. angry. I love angry Angel. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> that's what we like. We like our angels angry. Yes. <laughs> and we get a little bit of that, too, when Russell's chasing Cordelia and Angel's like doing the Batman thing to get into his house. Mm-hmm. But then Cordelia to Russell says, oh, you don't know who he is, do you? Yeah. Oh, boy, you're about to get your ass kicked. And I <laughs> just <laughs> loved that. Like, you yeah. have no idea what you're in for. Yeah. Um, and I really liked the the ending line of this episode when they're talking about putting this, you know, detective agency together and Doyle's kind of trying to inspire Angel and, mm-hmm. and Angel says, I'm game. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. not I'm in, not I'll do it, but I'm game. Yeah. And I just thought that was a, a really great line. Um, but for stuff that just entertained me, I want to call Angel's car the Batmobile so damn badly and you know when he's got the pop-out stakes on his wrist he looks like batman um and so of course i had to take this to our friend joshua unruh to be like okay we have to have a batman angel discussion um and and when doyle tries to drive the batmobile through the gates and just bounces off yes and he says good gate like it's just and even the batmobile the batmobile loses its power if angel isn't driving it right 
oh, well, I guess that's it. And yeah, kind of think but so. I just, yeah, I like that. I know, I love it. We have a lot of Batman style, you know, kind of in this uh, in this show, and there are going to be times where, like, we're going to reference Angel Batmaning off of a roof, you know, where he mm-hmm. just kind of like yeah. drops down, <laughs> you know, and also like he's got those, um, you know, those uh, gadgets, the stakes that shoot out of his wrists, you know, and that's very Batmany too, because Batman is really about you know, the gadgets and the things that he doesn't have his own superpower, his superpower is having like, you know, I mean, Batman has unlimited resources, Angel gets his money from I don't even know where he's not charging these people. And he doesn't have a portfolio as as uh, Cordelia pointed out, so. <laughs> where right. he gets the money for the big mansion in Buffy that he had or for any like, I don't, I don't know, I don't ask too many questions. Um, but I, I and I kind of like, too, that we have this kind of British sidekick. I mean, Doyle's a long way from Alfred, you know, but without spoilers, there's somebody else who's not quite so far from Alfred that we're going to be seeing you know, in a little while. Um, and I think that that's kind of funny. I feel like all of this is very deliberate, like this this Batman reference, this this guy who, you know, wanders around in the dark of night and he wears that, that big duster, which is not unlike Batman's cape. You know, that right. big leather duster that he wears. Um, so we have kind of superhero angel, you know, being all Batman-y, wearing, you know, essentially a cape. And um, you mentioned Joshua Unruh. Joshua Unruh is the co-host of my podcast, Listen Up A-Holes, which is a Marvel Cinematic Universe podcast in which we discuss superheroes, of course, at length. He is a superhero scholar. You can find more about him at pulpdictionproductions.com. Um, but he has so much knowledge on this. And he brought up this this kind of contrast between the idea of a superhero and the mystery man. And we're going to be kind of letting this sit on a shelf for a little while as we're talking about season one. We're going to bring Joshua back uh, for the season finale discussion in season one. But for right now, I just wanted him to give us a quick explanation of the difference between a superhero and a mystery man. I'm Joshua Unruh, superhero scholar from Pulp Diction Productions and co-host of Listen Up A-Holes right here on Chipperish. It's come to my attention that Lonnie and Kelly are arguing over whether or not Angel is a superhero, and since I'm the main reason Kelly doesn't think he is one, I've been brought in to at least set the terms of the debate. In the year of our Lord 2018, everyone broadly gets the concept of the superhero, but here are the bare minimum essentials, just so we're clear. 1. Superpowers. Superheroes have powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. 2. Colorful costumed identities. Superheroes wear costumes. You can call them uniforms or action suits if that makes you feel better, but they're visually striking, worn when fighting crime, and typically cannot be confused for street clothes. 3. Those costumed identities hide their civilian identity. 4. They fight crime. 5. Which also cloaks itself in colorful costumed identities. Run-of-the-mill Gunsels, fourth columnists, and mad scientists won't do. There must be supervillains who do evil as flamboyantly as the hero does good. Six, they must battle internal conflicts, literalized externally. I'm not getting into it, that's kind of a big deal. Number seven, they must be better people than us so as to inspire us. Most critically, superheroes didn't exist until 1938. But there were some guys who wore masks and had weird code names who fought crime before there were superheroes. You've probably heard of a few of them. Zorro, the Green Hornet, the Shadow. Some of them had interesting abilities, like the Shadow's ability to cloud men's minds. Some of them had outfits that are almost costumes, like the Green Hornet, who seriously has one of the best masks in history. 
But while they had mad scientists and genius crime lords, none of them had supervillains. None of them operated on the same kind of scale we've come to expect from even the most prosaic superhero fiction, and they were largely meant to thrill us, not inspire us. So there's a negative way to look at this that paints Mystery Men as poor men's superheroes, but that's not what I'm going for. Mystery Men have an illustrious history dating back to at least the Scarlet Pimpernel, and I'm not going to denigrate that by comparing them to a concept that didn't exist until the 20th century. But superheroes are generally just more and grander than Mystery Men. So, which is Angel? I'll leave it to Lonnie and Kelly to decide. Until my inevitable guest appearance, anyway. All right. Thank you so much, Joshua, for that. I am so excited yes. to have that discussion with you. We're going to set it apart for a little while. But I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of I'm waffling back and forth between both definitions for for Angel. And I think we may end up with a third thing that we're going to have Angel define somewhere in between, maybe. Yeah, I think so, too, because I've been bugging Unruh to teach me definitions and terms. So yeah. <laughs> and I keep trying to mash them together in ways that <laughs> I don't think is, is necessarily what he intended. But yeah, learning the archetypes of that and kind of putting that lens over angel is fascinating. It is. It's so, really interesting. Yeah. That'll be a great discussion. <laughs> um, and then you talked about Lindsay, you know, and kind of this, the whole evil law firm and mm -hmm. we get some foreshadowing about the senior partners. Right. Um, and not only do I love angel swagger in that scene, I really love Lindsay's. Oh, Lindsay yeah. doesn't break a sweat. He's no. not, intimidated by angel he just picks up the phone and he's like we've got a new player in town you know exactly and I, I like that they're sort of evenly matched in attitude well and it's also interesting too because we have these kind of this kind of dichotomy right we've got the senior partners on one side who are shadowy and who we don't really see and then we've got the powers that be that are supposed to be the force for good although they work in weird ways you know yeah. so I don't really understand that. Um, but it's kind of interesting how they sort of, you know, have this have this dichotomy, have this split between these two forces and everybody else is kind of being manipulated by those forces, the senior powers for the bad and the powers that be for, for the good, we're presuming at this point. Although given the kind of dark Los Angeles noir feeling that we have from Angel, you know, we have to talk about that essential corruption, right? Everything yeah. is corrupt in a noir story. And the hero is most corrupt of all. And I mean, who's more corrupted than a vampire, right? But in these right. noir stories, it's about the the corrupted, you know, hero who is not trying to save himself. He can't save himself. He's too far gone. There's no way you're ever going to get past that again. He's always going to be corrupted. But he wants to save the people who haven't been yet, you know, to protect mm -hmm. the innocent. And so we have a real kind of noir feel to this show as well definitely this episode but i mean the show overall gets that very noir and you know the detective and in, in the gritty grimy grungy streets of los angeles it's a classic noir trope so we're gonna have to talk with with unruh about that as well when we get him on the show at the end of the season yeah absolutely it's gonna be really and, fun. and there are not neat and easy and tidy yeah. lines of good and evil yeah on this show i mean not it, it it's gonna open up some interesting space for discussion Oh, no, absolutely. It really does. We do get the full spectrum. And uh, most characters, I would say, on Angel are somewhere in the middle. You know, we have yeah. some real good and some real bad, you know, and very, very clear and unambiguous. 
but most are kind of in the middle. And I think that's really interesting. You know, mm-hmm. um, we also have this moment that I love. It's just a quick moment when Angel calls Buffy on the phone and you can miss it if you look away for half a second. Uh, but we have the reflection, the other side of that moment in the season opener of Buffy and, and Buffy season four, which runs concurrent with Angel season one. Um, and so that to me was was kind of Easter eggy, but it, it was always a nice thing for me. I've always loved that. Um, one of the big things that I love, which is something that that probably, you know, a few people have noticed, but maybe not all, is in the opening scene with Angel, you know, pretending to be drunk at the bar, which is really kind of cute. Um, we have the vampire who is uh, Josh Holloway, who people may know as Sawyer from Lost. I love oh, Sawyer. 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 Sawyer speaks <laughs> to my heart and soul. And I'm not usually a, a bad boy you know, rough kind of girl oh, with honey. my with my heroes. I like my beta <laughs> heroes. But this this, you know, tough southern guy, like I love him in Lost. I think he's fantastic. I love Josh Holloway in general, who like behind the scenes is like one of the sweetest human beings you'll ever see. I mean, he mm-hmm. really is just adorable. Oh, yeah. And just a complete marshmallow compared to the characters that he plays, you know. Um, and uh, so I loved seeing Sawyer. That was very, very fun. And um, and I love Wolfman Hart, the evil law firm. I love Lindsay. Mm-hmm. I think that we're setting up something here that is really interesting, you know. So I, I those are all my moments of perfect happiness. But of course... Once you're done with your moment of perfect happiness, you get to the things that you hate in a segment we call Stake This. So, <laughs> Kelly, what in City Of did you want to stake? So, Stake This, y'all. Yeah. The <laughs> opening scene with Angel pretending to be drunk. Um, I know you like it. Yeah. I, to me, it was just like, come on, sweetie. <laughs> I mean, if Angel wants to drink, I have whiskey. I will show him the proper way yes. to get fully inebriated. But I just like to me, that was so campy. Oh, um, yeah. But he, you know, he goes out and there's a fight scene and it, it drags on a little bit, but we do get to see Angel Batmaning, which is great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But when the girl that he saves thanks him, he growls at her to run away because she's bleeding. And that seemed out of character because since when is a little human blood too much temptation for Angel? Yeah. Yeah. Like, Passing up temptation is what he does. That's what he's so, been doing for a hundred like, years, you know, with a couple right. of with a couple of very very short breaks in which he was, you know, <laughs> angelus and whatever. Um, but we do have this moment with Doyle, right, where Doyle comes in and he's like, "Oh, you know, you recently tasted, you know, human blood, and it wasn't just human blood; it was Slayer blood, and that makes you crave it. And one of these days, if you don't get connected to people, then you're gonna lose it. And you're gonna eat somebody." And I'm like, "No, he's not. I mean, no, Angel not. is the patron saint of of self restraint and self denial. You know, almost mm-hmm. almost to the point of." asceticism you know and so I think that it it doesn't really play for anybody who is at all familiar with Angel's character it feels like we're we're putting this in as something to give us a little more guilty motivation for Angel to have his found family to to re-enter the world you know and I feel like it's kind of the weakest part of the episode I don't really feel like we need that you know we we, Doyle hits that gong really hard and I don't think we need it yep I don't either yeah so So what about you what was the 
<laughs> yeah, what's the first thing you want to stake? The first thing I want to stake is this whole like LA man, you know, thing. Like, um, <laughs> this is LA. Guys like him get away with murder. You know, it's it's this whole LA scene thing that we'll see sometimes in television shows and in movies. And I always find it a little bit inside baseball. It's like when writers write about writers writing. Like, I don't mm-hmm. care. And I mean, I'm a writer. Like, I I I'm I'm a writer, and I hate when writers do that. I hate when writers do the inside baseball thing. It's like, oh yeah yeah, we get it. You're taking a look at, you know, Los Angeles as Hollywood and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and so that kind of stuff, like always just really annoys me. And it's just a tiny little thing, but you know, the way that they, they treat the LA scene and they've got that guy who's, you know, who's talking to Angel and he's like, I'm not hitting on you. I'm with the landscape architect, you know, and it's like, oh, Jesus. Yeah. You know, somebody yeah, said that to somebody for real at a party man. and they just put it in there and it's like, I don't care, you know? Right. Right. So, uh, so what else? What, yeah. what else would you stake from this episode? So we kind of get Doyle as the exposition fairy mm-hmm. and the Jiminy Cricket sidekick. And it gets on my ever loving last nerve. Right. So like, I, I will grow to like him later. But right now he is a pain in the ass. And yeah. his instant crush on Cordelia is yeah. obnoxious. And I actually had to pause the show and go back. And turn on closed captioning to make sure I heard this line mm-hmm. the way I thought I heard this line. But when he said to, about Cordelia, oh, yeah, she's a stiffener, no doubt. Yeah. I was like, what the holy hell? Did he really just say that? That is disgusting. So, oh, yeah, yeah. Instant dislike for Doyle. Yeah. And I think, I mean, this is, what, 2001, I think, was when this was out. And so, I mean, I know that certain things don't age as well <laughs> yeah and in the time but i mean the reason why this was acceptable in the time is because we were not saying that this stuff was gross but it's still gross and for him to you know for him to have a crush on her and to be somebody that we are supposed to you know kind of root for with cordelia first of all cordelia is awesome but she's awesome for a million reasons that you get to know as you get to know her all he knows about her is that she's pretty And to reduce her to this kind of overly objectified, overly sexualized, you know, female ideal, I find really, really irritating. And the thing is, is that I super want to like Doyle. We open up, he's got these visions, he's got this, you know, this mission mission from God or the powers that be, you know, um, where he's he's going to help Angel help the helpless. Um, he's got that vulnerability that he's got this half demon side of himself. Um, and he kind of has to hide that he's passing for human. So there are a lot of things about Doyle that I really want to like. You know, Mm -hmm. but I don't like it's the it's the stiffener thing. It's the when things start heating up at the mansion, he actually like goes to leave and leave Angel there. And then he turns the Batmobile around and crashes it into the gate. Right. Um, So, I mean, I guess that's a, a redeeming thing. And we see him struggle with his own sense of cowardice. And that adds a little bit of vulnerability, um, which is which is always nice in a character. Vulnerability is is the thing that will get you connected with a character. And so that's good. But yeah, I don't I don't care for the way that they are building him, you know, and this this kind of objectifying of Cordelia. Of Cordelia, of all people, I will fight you. Cordy's awesome and deserves your goddamn respect, you know? So, like, to have him objectify any woman that way would be gross, but to objectify her that way? Like, Doyle is is a tough, 
nut to crack, I gotta say, and I want to like him. I desperately want to like him, but I can't, not at this point. Yeah, I'm with you on that. <laughs> and and I feel kind of bad because, and this is something without spoilers, you'll probably hear me say more than once, because <laughs> I don't always like the victims or the people that yeah. Angel is supposed to help. Mm-hmm. And I didn't like Tina. Yeah. Like, I just, eh, I didn't no. really care. Right. Um, her finding that note that Doyle had written about her was sloppy and contrived. And yeah. I just, uh, she felt like a placeholder until we put Cordelia in danger because we knew Cordy wasn't going to die in episode one. Right. But and also the I darkness just, of losing you know, like she dies, yeah. you know, Tina gets right. killed. And so the fact that Angel goes in to save this girl and fails, I think mm-hmm. is kind of nice. Like, I like that he fails. Yeah. But Tina as a character is not, we don't really get a, a hold on her. Like, you know, good characters and even, you know, secondary characters, characters that are just like guest characters for an episode. Um, you know, every character in order to work needs to be a combination of strengths, weaknesses and vulnerabilities. And here we have this girl who's just vulnerability. You know, mm-hmm. we don't see any strengths in her. We don't see any real weaknesses. We don't get a sense of who she is. She's just, you know, a pretty girl that's being attacked and, and you know, she doesn't trust you know, Angel, and it's this whole thing. And I don't know, I I find it annoying. And I don't really care when she bites it, you know, (laughs) no pun intended. Um, (laughs) I don't really care at all. And then once we have Cordelia in danger, that's when I care and why we didn't just have it be Cordelia who's in danger in the first place. You know, that Mm -hmm. that the fact that, you know, Doyle would be coming to Angel and Angel isn't ready to listen about the powers that be, but that the person that Doyle is there to tell him about would be Cordelia, I think would make him trust the powers that be a little bit more because he's already invested in Cordelia. So, you know, and I mean, I like, we can't obviously have Cordelia die, you know, in the opening episode. Um, So, I mean, I, I, I do like that he fails. I like the, the darkness of failing at the task, failing to save this girl, you know? Um, But at the same time, we're, we're basically just killing time until Cordelia gets there, you know? Right. And right. and that's another thing that brings us to like the powers that be, which is something that I don't particularly care for. Um, mm-hmm. The powers that be of the senior partners, I, I like conceptually, I like philosophically, I like that we have these two kind of, you know, forces that are that are manipulating the players on the board, which is the human players that we've got, you know, and making them fight each other while each of them sits in their, I don't know, weird metaphysical void, wherever they are, you know. <laughs> but the thing is, the powers that be, like, if they're so damn powerful, why do they have to play this game? Why can't they just fix things if it's so important that things get fixed? You know, if you have that much power, why not just skip over Angel and fix everything? You know, if you can do that. And I guess that they're supposed to be so powerful, but they're not powerful enough to actually do anything. But they know everything that's going on. But yet they're just sending Doyle to Angel, you know, and what are they actually doing? doing it's it feels like just a game like it doesn't matter and so there's something about the powers that be that that feel wrong from a narrative sense like if you have that much power on the board you know you have to limit the power this is why vampires they're so powerful but they can't go out in the daytime and if you stick them with wood they'll die and if you catch them on fire they'll die and holy water is going to give them a hell of a rash like you have to (laughs) mitigate power with 
um, you know, with weaknesses, with things that will, will like balance that power out. Otherwise we have this huge power differential. And when you've got the senior partners and when you've got the powers that be, they're supposed to be so powerful and so scary, but yet they don't have that much power if they can't even affect anything without going to this vampire with a soul, you know? Um, so I don't know. I find it, it's always been a problem for me throughout the run of Angel. I accept it at the beginning because it's just the way it is. The powers are going to be a thing, you know, throughout the run of Angel. Um, but yeah, I just, they just annoy me. And narratively, they, they kind of pull everything off balance a little bit. Yeah. It makes me wonder though, because like I said in our, in our teaser episode, mm -hmm. Angel for me is a show about choices. Right. And so maybe because the powers that be and the senior partners are sort of in this, they're not players in the human world. They can only have their actions carried out by humans, but humans have free will. Yeah. And so they can only influence and drive things, but they can't force anyone's hand. Yeah. So they can give Doyle visions, but they can't force Angel to save anybody. Yeah. You know, um, the evil lawyers, they're humans. They, they're acting of their own choice. Mm -hmm. So maybe maybe that is part of it, but we don't get that explanation within the narrative of the show. Yeah. At least not right now. So. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's a little bit too much. I mean, I like that you've got yeah. these powers that are that are all knowing, apparently, but have no actual power, you know, but it's it's I don't know, it just it never really sat right for me. Yeah, I think so, too. Um, and one of the other things that kind of bothered me about it, and we'll talk more about this in a second, but um, Angel, you know, follows up on the vision. He does the hero thing. But then at the end of the episode, we have brooding Angel mm -hmm. who says, I didn't help anyone. And we're all like, what about Cordelia? You know, and <laughs> so. And all the people that Russell saved. Winters was going to kill if you didn't right. throw him out the window, you know. Right. So that Angel in the I am never good enough and therefore must always brood mode is yeah. just not my favorite thing. No, I like I kick ass, pissed off Angel. That's my yeah. favorite angel. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I didn't really care for Cordelia. Like, this is, I know it's one of the things that you liked, but the, her getting vulnerable with Russell Winters so quickly. I mean, she's there to impress him. She's mm -hmm. also in an extremely vulnerable space just in general like being at this man's house i mean you know forget that he's a vampire he's a hollywood guy and being alone in a big mansion you know in a hollywood with a hollywood guy obviously has not turned out that well in real life for a lot of people it's very very dangerous whether he's a vampire or not you know and um so for her to expose herself and be that vulnerable, you know, with him so quickly um, feels a little bit off. I think it's important for us to see that vulnerability with Cordelia, mm -hmm. um, you know, which we've seen a little bit. We've seen her in her crappy apartment. We've seen her try to do the mantra, you know, while she's starving, you know, um, I, I just I don't know. It just, it, it's not something that really sat well with me. I didn't particularly care for it. And and I like when we get to the Cordelia who says, oh, you don't know who he is. You know, right. that's the Cordelia <laughs> I like. This, this yes, instantly absolutely. 
vulnerable kind of thing with Cordelia I didn't particularly care for. And then, of course, the last thing that I'm going to put in the stake this uh, segment um, is the irony smash, which is something that Angel, as a show, loves to do to the point where it almost it gets so creaky and old after a while. But, you know, this is our first, you know, Angel irony smash where, you know, uh, Doyle's downstairs and he's saying there's a girl up there who's as happy as can be. And it's immediately followed by Cordelia screaming, you know. Um, And this is a thing that Angel does all the time. You just got to get used to it. But the irony smash it just it drives me crazy because it gets so creaky after a while. It was funny the first couple of times, but after a while, part of the reason why it's funny is because it's unexpected. But when it gets expected, then it's just creaky. Yeah, but I love the name Irony Smash. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That's a great term. <laughs> I like it. Thank you. So, so speaking of defining terms, yes. that can kind of move us into the research mode yeah. section, which is where we put like our unanswered questions, mm-hmm. right, from the episode. Doors that get opened and not closed or explained. Right. So I was thinking about this in terms of the rules of the world, and um, and I kind of came up with two ideas that I don't quite completely understand yet mm-hmm. or are problematic. And this is the role of orgasms and invitations. Yes. On mm-hmm. Angel the Series. Because they do a lot of exposition around Angel's curse. And they really define, like, sex and an orgasm as this definition of perfect happiness. Right. But since when is an orgasm an experience of perfect happiness? Like, does it have to be an orgasm with someone Angel loves deeply, like Buffy? Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, orgasms are awesome, but perfect happiness seems like it would require something more. Right. And And I think that it does. Like, I think that it is, it isn't an orgasm. It is an orgasm with Buffy that gives him that perfect happiness. But we love to go to the joke of Angel can't have sex or he'll turn bad, you know? Right, Um, right. And it it limits him in another way that he can't connect in in a very particular way with people, you know? Um, So I think that it's something that we, we turn to really often more for the joke, but as a piece of world building, you're absolutely right. You know, it's really about that deep connection, that moment with Buffy or with somebody that he loves that deeply. Yeah. And I love the metaphor in Buffy, right? Mm -hmm. You sleep with a nice guy and wake up next to a demon. Yeah. But defining this curse specifically seems to be really important on Angel, the shows. Yeah. And I mean, did the Romani really think it was a good idea to curse a gorgeous man with losing his soul by turning into a super evil vampire just for having sex? Because (laughs) someone did not think that plan all the way through. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and Mm -hmm. the curse makes for a great tragic love story with Buffy, but it's not a well-constructed curse. Yeah. Like, Mm -hmm. they needed a better framework. Yes. That's what I'm saying. And then the whole thing about vampires needing invitations and kind of how that works and what the rules are. Demons don't need invitations to enter someone's home. So why do vampires? Right. Like, is it because they're the only creatures to take human souls? Mm-hmm. I don't really understand the difference. Like, why can a demon get in uninvited, but a vampire can't? Yeah. And because vampires are demons, but not all demons are vampires. If you're going to play the logic game, it still doesn't make sense. And the invitation rule gets a little muddy on Angel. So we'll be revisiting this from time to time. No, absolutely. I mean, it really seems to only function between humans and vampires. And maybe mm-hmm. it does have something to do with the vampire is part human. 
And so because they are the antithesis of humanity, they are a human without a soul, they can only be brought in by invitation. You know, and I think I think like thematically there's something there, but you're right. I mean, they're demons. So other demons are even more the antithesis of being human because they're they don't even have human bits to them. They're not even like from human (laughs) source. Right. So you would think that it would be even more important that a demon would not be able to enter without an invitation. But we also have a big question about demons, whether they're good, you know, right. Um, because we, we open up like at the beginning of Buffy, right? We start setting this up that all vampires are bad. All demons are bad. And that gives Buffy, you know, the right to just kill them, you know, with extreme prejudice. Right. Um, but as we move through the series, we've seen some, um, demons that are good in, in the, um, season two episode of Buffy called passion. Um, we have a demon who's not entirely unlike Doyle and who I believe they wanted to bring back in the Doyle place but couldn't get the actor, so they just made a new one. But it was this this um, character called Whistler who was the demon yeah. who kind of brought Angel back to humanity, you know, um, and, and brought him to Buffy, you know. Um, and so I we've seen that not all demons are bad, right? And here we have Doyle who is half human, half demon, you know, who's apparently mom and dad came from opposite sides and somehow made that work at one one way or another. <laughs> um, so I think that that is is kind of an interesting question about what what the rules are, you know, for mm-hmm. demons, what what demons are about that demons are not inherently evil, but vampires are like vampires. There's nobody who loses their soul who um, who doesn't become complete evil. You know, Um, even Spike, who we love over in Buffy, you know, who's interesting, like when he doesn't he doesn't have a soul, he's still always evil. Like even when he's fun and he's, he's, you know, we love him, but he's always evil. Um, But demons are not always evil. Vampires are so except for this exception with a vampire with a soul. So I, I it's an interesting question. I think it, it kind of works with the world building, you know, as we evolve the world building, we get more of these questions, you know, mm-hmm. um, asked about where the line is there. But I think that maybe maybe there's something in that that a vampire is always evil if he doesn't have a soul, you know, um, whereas demons are not. Maybe so. It's just interesting because it it adds complexity to what, you know, might sound like a simple dichotomy. Mm -hmm. Humans are good. Demons are evil. And we know that that's not always the case. Yeah. Not to mention the fact that we get some truly evil humans. Yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. People with souls, you would presume. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's just going to be an interesting philosophical question to keep an eye on. And. That also sort of made me wonder about the powers that be, and and it does bug me because they don't really come across as a force for good so much as I'm not sure exactly what's going on with them. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. So Doyle gets these visions from the powers that be about people who are going to be in trouble, and then he's enlisted Angel as the hero to help. But are there seers and heroes in every city? Or is Mm -hmm. it just L.A.? And like, since Angel doesn't actually save Tina, was Cordelia the real focus of the vision after all? Mm -hmm. And how do the powers that be choose who gets saved and who doesn't? Like, who is vision worthy and why? 
Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know the answer to that, but it also kind of got me thinking that on Buffy, mm-hmm. we know Buffy's dreams as a slayer are prophetic, mm-hmm. right? She has dreams sometimes about things that give her clues that she needs to beat the bad guy or things that are going to come true. So I kind of started wondering, maybe those visions are meant for slayers. Mm-hmm. And that's why they're so hard on Doyle when he gets them. They're, they're painful. You know, they're incredibly difficult to go through. They're not very clear. Mm-hmm. Um, so I kind of wondered, like, maybe the powers that be are giving him a borrowed power from the slayer that is not meant for him. And that's why a slayer can have prophetic dreams without pain, but it a half demon can't yeah and i'm just completely making that up but i just kind of wondered because we sort of get this idea of vision in both shows Mm -hmm. so yeah no i think that that's really interesting you know that that this kind of prophecy you know would come from a place that is incredibly powerful and that you know maybe doyle being you know half human isn't up to it you know, not yeah. having the slayer strength isn't up to it. Yeah, so right. that's that's an interesting question. Yeah, I don't know. And it, it it really, the last thing I kind of put in my question box is this idea of Angel sort of believing Doyle so quickly. Like yeah. Angel buys his story without any real evidence, but mm-hmm. Angel is old and smart and cynical. And so yeah. unless he just wanted that, called by the powers that be to be a hero thing to be mm-hmm. true, I didn't really buy that he would go along with Doyle so fast. Yeah. See, this is another space where had it been Cordelia from the beginning, that yes. would have would have fixed that problem as well. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah no, he yeah. does. He's, he's very, for somebody who's been around long enough to have met, you know, people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <to> really trusting. <laughs> All right, so we're going to finish up our discussion of City of and every episode with one to brood on. These are the important points. Um, When it's a skipper ep, we're going to give you the basics of what you need to take away so that you don't have to watch it. And when it's a watcher, we're going to talk about why we decided to make it a watcher. And City of is a watcher. I mean, basically, it's the first episode. It's the pilot. It sets up the series, you know, so you kind of have to make it a watcher. But even so, I mean, it's a pretty good episode, you know. We are able to arc Angel from this rogue, I work alone, you know, kind of dude, right, <laughs> into the found family, you know, and it's and whenever we, we have these people working together, it's always a family story. Those are always what those stories are about. And we are becoming, you know, Cordelia and Doyle are the family, you know, that Angel has in Los Angeles. So I think that that's pretty cool. We get our core team put together. And we also get the setup of the not big bad in the way that Buffy sees a big bad. When Buffy has a big bad, the structure is that the big bad, uh, you know, is the threat for the season and then at our season finale Buffy finally destroys the big bad and and is victorious you know um so so the big bad here isn't so much somebody that is going to be taken down as somebody that is going to be an ever-present threat right and mm-hmm. Wolferman Hart you know is the manifestation of the senior partners who who are this threat and are not you know are not a thing that are going to be vanquished they're just always going to be present, which I think is interesting when you think about the philosophy of Angel versus Buffy. Buffy has this sense that if you work hard enough and if you're good enough and if you do the right thing and, you know, all this stuff, you will beat them. You mm-hmm. will beat the big bad, right? And Angel is about you're never going to beat the big bad. There's always going to be something bad out there, but you keep 
fighting because it's the right thing to do, um, which does come down to, I think, I think it may feed into that idea of yours about power and strength versus choices, you yeah. know? I think so, so too. Uh, At least right now, that's where I am with it. So Yeah. So I think that's yeah. pretty interesting. All right. Okay. So now let's go into uh, Lonely Hearts. In Lonely Hearts, Doyle gets a vision that sends Angel looking for an eviscerating demon who's been running through the clientele of a local bar. While there, Angel meets Kate, a detective working undercover who is also looking for the killer. While Angel tries and fails to save a victim of the demon, Kate walks in on Angel and mistakes him for the killer. Eventually, they take down the real killer together and Angel wins over Kate's trust for the moment. The first super awful, terrible, not so good episode yes, of Angel. It's a like, truly, truly what happened? So interesting trivia here. Yeah. I did not know this, mm-hmm. but I looked it up because I was curious. Yeah, and apparently, this was not supposed to be episode two. Oh, really? So no, they had a, a different script written. Something happened, and that script was, like, not approved. I think it was too dark or too violent. Something happened. Mm -hmm. And so at the last minute, they had to throw together a script. Um, Oh, no, I remember what it was. Kate, when she she's not a cop in that scene. Mm -hmm. She was, like, a very dark, twisted, tortured prostitute. And, like, the whole thing came across as too dark for the producers. And so they, they were, like, they told the... You know, the show writers know you have to cancel this and start over. And so they like threw this episode together uh-huh. super fast. And okay. that explains why it's so god awful. That does. It explains a lot. It really does. Yes. So I don't even know all the facts around that. I just looked it up and I was like, there has to be a reason. Yeah, right. This sucks so much. Because it is truly, <laughs> truly terrible. So Lonely Hearts is our first skipper yes. episode. Mm-hmm. Um, seriously, y'all. Don't watch it. <laughs> Just not good. Let us walk you through it. Um, so trying to think of moments of perfect happiness for this were few and far between. Yeah. There were only a few things that I even kind of liked. Mm-hmm. So if if I was going to lose my soul for pure happiness, I could watch this episode in total safety. Like, yes, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so what were your moments? Did you have any moments of, of perfect happiness? Would I call them perfect happiness? No, but on a sliding scale of everything that I hated in this episode to the stuff that I could bear that wasn't so bad. <laughs> it's basically <laughs> the moments of, eh, not so bad. Um, one of them was, I, I like we got Doyle's first vision, you know, so we really mm-hmm. see what it takes out of him and how difficult that is. And again, that speaks to Doyle's vulnerability, which we really need because Doyle is incredibly, incredibly unlikable. So that helps a little bit. Um, also, I liked Cordelia with the business cards i know the stupid angel is it a lobster i mean it's obviously an angel it's clearly an angel it doesn't look like a lobster but the joke of it is kind of fun um and i like that she's getting court she's getting business cards she's being courty you know she's doing the thing and so i kind of like that she's more uh grown up and more business-like than either of these dudes you know so yeah, i kind of like true. that so what did you that's did you true. have anything that you liked um, well, we get Angel as Batman again with his gadgets, and that mm-hmm. was kind of funny. Yeah. Um, I did like it when Cordelia invited Angel into her apartment, and she said, you promise you'll stay good? Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of this, like, Angel as a puppy tone that yes. only Cordelia can strike that mm-hmm. I thought was funny. And then at the very end of the episode, Angel offers to take Cordy and Doyle out 
to celebrate. And Cordelia says, or we could go home and you can sit in the dark alone. And Angel <laughs> says, God, yes, thank you. Like, <laughs> that was it. That's the only thing I liked. It is. I think Cordy episode. is the one, like, she's the MVP of this episode. Yes. No, no doubt. Because I love her. Like, the stuff that I love is her in her apartment when she's there with Doyle. And Doyle picks up her bra and she's like, oh, Cordelia wears bras. Ooh, she has girl parts. And she totally <laughs> takes him down. She's so tough and she's not embarrassed at all, which I absolutely love. I love Cordelia. And then, you know, of course, like, we didn't see any donkey demons. Like, I just, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. She's just really, really cute. So um, so basically, Cordelia is the moment of perfect happiness. She's the only answer for that in this episode. And the stake this um, is, is actually a fairly full space. So what would you stake <laughs> in Lonely Hearts, Kelly? Oh, it needs so many stakes. So if the powers that be are going to go to the trouble of sending visions to Doyle about people who need help, you would think they could be a little more specific than an entire bar. No kidding, right? Full of people. Like, (laughs) come on. (laughs) Oh, God. Yeah, well, I would stake uh, Doyle's crush on Cordelia. This immediately he's in love with her. He hasn't gotten to know her yet. And to know Cordelia is to love her. When you have a crush on her, again, it's just this thing. Cordelia is better than that. She's not here to just be beautiful for you, Doyle, you know, and that that's the only thing that he really knows about her is how beautiful she is. And there's so much more to love her for. Um, Also, Mm -hmm. there's this thing and we just have to we just have to live with it. Um, Cordelia is supposed to be 18 at this point, maybe yep. 19, mm-hmm. right? Um, she went straight from high school graduation to Los Angeles. And um, when obviously she is 24, 25, um, her affect, the way that she lives her life, she's obviously, you know, already been to college. She's already had those experiences. Like <laughs> um, Cordelia, you just, she, you can't believe that she's 18. So for me, I have a canon, right? That okay. we're doing a little hell math, right? Um, with a nod to Buffering <laughs> the Vampire Slayer, which calls this hell math. And it's brilliant. Um, where Remember when Angel went into the hell dimension and it was like a couple of months in, um, yeah. in time, you know, but it was like 100 years for him. Well, I am, I am presuming that somewhere on the ride from Sunnydale to Los Angeles, um, Cordelia fell into one of these demon dimensions. And, you know, a, about five years went by and it was maybe 30 seconds here. And then she... She just came back and picked up the rest of the way. But she is now 24. You know, so like <laughs> she's obviously 24. So I just I put that a little headcanon thing in there because everything going on with Cordelia is not OK if she's 18. But, you know, fine if she's 25. So so that's kind of like where I have her. I have her mid 20s. You know, Yeah, that works for me. So we, we got a little hell math going on. So so what else would you stake? What are your stakers? So like this episode presented the most depressing view of a singles bar and a one night stand I have ever seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But but if you're going out and someone says that they think you're special and they just want to hold you within five minutes of meeting you, just run, run yeah, away. Right. Don't look back. Like That is not going to end well. Um, <laughs> it was just completely unrealistic and awkward. You know, mm-hmm. the conversations in the bar were terrible the sex scenes that we saw were awful yeah. mm-hmm. like it was just bad um, it's just bad but what's the worst thing why don't you introduce us to the worst thing that happens in this episode the, yes the very worst thing is kate oh god oh god like 
how in holy hell does Kate get written into more than one episode? Right. How do I they mean, watch this episode and then say, no, let's keep her going. Let's keep her yeah, on. Let's, let's have her back. Oh, I have. I loathe Kate. I, yeah. I hate her more than I hate the big bads. Yes. Like she <laughs> is awful. Yeah. She She's a poorly drawn cartoon of a woman who's supposed to be badass and tough but doesn't understand the difference between badass, tough, bitchy, whiny, reckless, judgmental, and obnoxious. Yeah, I'm like, give me Darla or Drusilla any day. And in fact, if we have to have Kate in an episode, let's write it so Drusilla kills her. Oh, yeah. Because I would be on Drusilla's side there. (laughs) Yeah, me too. Drew can show her what a badass looks like, and I can cheer and say good riddance because I am not a nice person, y'all. Yeah, right. But but like when when she was saying that being a hypocrite was one step up from being a drunken slut, I Mm -hmm. was just like, you have got to be kidding me. I mean, she's the worst. She is the worst ever. And I hate her. No, she's really, really terrible. She's unwatchable. Um, And she is she's written like what happens when, you know, somebody is told you have to write a strong female character and they're like, okay, so I'll make her really angry. And really mm-hmm. bitchy with no reason, you know, and I, I just like everything. Uh, she's dumb. I mean, and that's the thing. Yeah. Like, I don't care about bitchy. Don't give me stupid. You know, right. I mean, she breaks into Angel's apartment. She's not dressed as a cop. She's got her gun, but she doesn't have like anything else. She doesn't have any backup. She doesn't have a freaking warrant, you know? Right. I mean, it's so freaking dumb. She just saw him like Batman off a third story window and land in the middle of traffic and be just fine. Like, you know, something right. weird's going on with this guy. You don't go in without backup. And so the idea that she would, you know, do that, first of all, second of all, like completely just go over to his apartment, like and and violate his rights and his privacy mm-hmm. without You know, I mean, all of it on every level is just incredibly stupid. And the way that she treats him at the bar and the way that she's so easily offended by absolutely everything he says and does. um, No, you know, she's not. There's nothing about her that's appealing. The only thing she has going for is that she's beautiful. And I'm sorry, but that's not enough. And that's not the most important thing that a woman can be, which is what annoys me, you know, brings me back to what annoys me about Doyle and Cordelia. Like, you know, when you treat women as though the most valuable thing that they are is pretty you know and we do that again later in this episode when they're talking about the girl sharon you know they have these two misogynistic assholes at the bar you know who are completely dissing her and they're like um you know sharon last time i saw her she was getting it on with some screech and then somebody the other guy was like yeah that's more her level and they're completely taking her down why because she doesn't wear a lot of makeup i mean first of all the actress is gorgeous. They just didn't put a lot of makeup on her. That's it. You know, and that's supposed to make her so hideous and so awful that these guys are going to be terrible about her. And then it turns out that one of them is being terrible about her because he asked her out and she turned him down. And that makes the misogyny like even more awful. And I understand that they're making a commentary on this guy being such a jerk because she, you know, hurt his fragile little ego. But it's still all so disgusting because up until that moment where we have that turn, this conversation is being treated as though that's completely an okay way to talk about another person. Right. And and they get so much of this so badly wrong. Like, I am all for a woman owning her sexuality and yeah. taking agency and, 
you know, hitting on a man that she finds attractive if she wants to. But but rules of consent and respect go both ways. And Mm -hmm. we see, you know, Kate inviting Angel to go somewhere more private and he turns her down. And then she just like pouts. Yeah. And it is. And then Angel apologizes. And I'm like, why Why? is why would he have to apologize? He he doesn't owe her anything. He wasn't rude. She's known him for five minutes and she's told him she has trouble trusting people. Plus, She's boring as hell. And I mean, exactly. And whiny. She just sits there and whines the whole time. It's awful. And given enough whiskey, I get downright flirtatious when I'm drinking, but I would not have gone home with her either. So, like, I just, I don't understand why. And he has the right to say no. Right. Why would he have to apologize for that? Exactly. You can't ask somebody something and then when they say no, get all pouty about it. Right, you know, it, it, I mean, if if a guy was getting pouty, we would, you know, we'd slap be him. angry with him. Exactly. It was ridiculous. Exactly. Yeah, it was just awful. Yeah, no, it was it's just awful. awful. Yeah, mm-hmm. and then we have this, you know, entire heterosexual privilege or heterosexual norm. Yeah view on this because you have this, you know, this demon that jumps from body to body and is trying to hook up, and the demon is a total zero on the Kinsey scale. Yeah, like. Mm-hmm. Maybe it would have had better luck if it was more open to same-sex partners, but it was like ridiculous of how how it flopped back and forth. Because, yeah, it and, was, and it was it such was, a presumption too, because this right. demon goes from body to body. This demon has been sleeping with both men and women, but when yeah. it's a woman, must sleep with a man, and when it's a man, must sleep with a woman, and that's ridiculous. You know, obviously, this demon is right in the middle, you know, absolutely the definition of bisexual, because it will sleep with either or, you know, but but based on the human form that it has, the presumption is that the only people it can sleep with are of the opposite sex. That is absolutely not the case. Um, And this whole thing, too, um, you know, where it. It has to sleep with somebody first, and then it, it, the thing that just didn't make any sense. And I guess I'll get to that in, in the unanswered questions. I'm kind of skipping ahead. Um, but, you know, the idea that it has to sleep with somebody first, there has to be this exchange of, um, you know, of fluids, and then it can do the, uh, just let me hold you, and then, you know, take over the body and all this kind of stuff. Like, none of that makes any sense. It's all pretty terrible. Yeah, it was just terrible. And plus, the whole exchange of body fluid thing doesn't make any sense for the time this was shot because uh, condoms, like, it's just the whole, the whole physiology of this demon makes no sense whatsoever. Yeah, it was just so bad. And the whole conversation, like all of the lines that it tried to use with people and yeah let's make a connection thing was like oh my god it was just awful oh god the make a connection thing that they hit that so freaking hard and kate it's so hard to get to know people you know like yeah i don't even know what the hell they were trying to go for i don't even know what that but it was it's so bad and it's so like heavy-handed with everything that it's trying to like you know it's trying to make a statement about being lonely and all this it's just it's so it's so freaking bad and then at the end too we have this moment where angel gives kate his business card right Mm -hmm. and i mean that's great and all because we get this you know little joke about oh what is that a lobster which it obviously is not but anyway it looks less like a lobster than it does an angel but whatever but i mean the thing is 
this bitch just broke into your house. She has all your contact information. She knows where you live. She knows your phone <laughs> number. She knows your social security number. She knows everything yeah. about you. You know, there's no reason why you need to give her your card aside from making some kind of sort of, I guess, friendly gesture. Um, but uh, but all of it, all of it is just is just bad. I want to stake pretty much the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I think I'd like to stake the, pretty much the whole episode. It was just bad. (laughs) Yeah. So let's go into research mode. What do you got for me there? So we have the same angel having sex means angel losing his soul world building conversation in this episode Mm -hmm. that we had in episode one. But that aspect of the curse still doesn't make sense. And the more I think about it, the more holes I see in it. Mm -hmm. Because the Romani cursed angel, not Angelus. Mm -hmm. And as far as justice goes, that's not a fair punishment because... They punished a human soul for the actions of a demon. Right. And those actions took place when the soul was not in that body. Mm-hmm. And then if that human, once he's re-ensouled, finds a moment of true happiness, the demon returns and picks right back up on his poetic twisted killing spree. It's really not a smart curse. Right. Because like, the demon it, it, doesn't really suffer at all. Right. Right. I mean, I guess right. you could say that the demon is inside Angel the whole time. And, and we do kind of address this a little bit where Angel is constantly having to fight the demon inside, you know. But Angel wins, like, right. hands down, you know. And it is Angel who is suffering. It is the soul mm-hmm. that is that has been absent, that has been, you know, reinstalled. And now the soul is the thing that suffers, not the demon. So that's really interesting. And also, like, I think that there's an interesting question, and we do have this philosophy in Buffy. Um, So this has been established in the world, in the Buffyverse, which, of course, is what Angel comes from, that if you are possessed by something at the time that you do something, then you are not responsible for what that that possessed entity has done. Like, you know, um, way back in the pack in the first season of Buffy, we have Xander who is possessed by the hyenas, but he is not held responsible for what he does when he is possessed by the hyenas. And we do that every time somebody is possessed. If they are not in control of themselves, they are not held responsible. Yet, Angel, who was not in control of becoming a vampire, who did not choose to become a vampire, who was, you know, basically, you know, violated and and taken without his consent, um, ends up coming back and being responsible for everything that Angelus did. So it it opens up this space of where is the line between the human mm-hmm. that was and the the vampire that is which is a, a discussion we'll be having plenty throughout the run of angel and and definitely we'll be having that discussion also over on still pretty talking about buffy um but also that that you know unlike and this is why vampires are always a special case right unlike every other entity that is possessed by something bad and then does something bad and is not held responsible uh, vampires are held responsible when they when yeah. they get their souls, you know. Yep. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's interesting. an interesting bit of story, muddy waters. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the other thing is, um, and these aren't really deep thoughts. It was just desperately trying to find something valuable out of this episode. <laughs> so <laughs> the episode is called "Lonely Hearts," but that makes no sense because this is about physical connection. So it seems like it should have been called Lonely Body or Lonely Parasite or don't go to a singles bar with your face peeling off, covered in blood and hope to get laid. Or I hate Kate. Yes. That one rhymes. Like, (laughs) but (laughs) very funny side note. When I was typing my notes for our show, my internet kind of hiccuped and went out. 
And I got this message from my browser that said trying to connect. Yeah. And I was like, no, no, no. Like, <laughs> no more watching this episode in front right of the technology. during that episode, I right? I never like want to hear needed, those words again. <laughs> like, you needed that hit one more goddamn time, right? Yeah, right. Like, no. It was oh just my so God. bad. Oh, God, that is. That is. All right. So let's let's get out of Lonely Hearts. What is our one to brood on? What are we taking away from this episode so that we can skip it and never think of it again? The only significant takeaway from this episode is the introduction of Kate Lockley, mm-hmm. the Los Angeles cop who will help slash annoy <laughs> Angel for a while. Way too long for my liking. Yeah. Aside from that, Lonely Hearts is utterly forgettable. But at least it sets a super low bar to rise above in future episodes because it's just bad. (laughs) It's just bad. It's just bad. (laughs) But the sad thing is if you watch the pilot and then you watch Lonely Hearts and you said, no, no more. This show's going to be terrible. You would miss episode three. Yeah. In the dark, which is a great episode. It really is. In this crossover episode with Buffy's The Harsh Light of Day, Oz brings the Gem of Amara, a ring that makes vampires invincible even in the daytime, to Angel at Buffy's request. Spike, who came to town looking for the ring, captures Angel and hires an especially sadistic vampire named Marcus to torture the ring's location out of Angel. Cordy, Oz, and Doyle rescue Angel, but Marcus takes the gem from Spike and cuts loose on L.A. As Marcus tracks his favorite prey, children, at the pier, Angel jumps out into the sunlight and knocks Marcus into the water just as Angel's about to burst into flames. Angel gets the ring, but then decides to destroy it so he can stay in the dark where he can do the most good. All right, so In the Dark is like the first legit just based on the merit watcher of Angel. Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's really pretty good. Yeah, it really is pretty good. Yeah. So what were your moments of perfect happiness? What was really great oh. about this episode? There were so many. I mean, mm-hmm. first of all, I love Spike. So anything yeah. with Spike is going to make me happy. <laughs> but I was, I was watching this and sort of watching Spike and Angel and the comparison and contrast between them. Because they're well matched in terms of their ability to fight and their yeah. personalities. Um, so, of course, I started looking at this through the lens of learning theory because yes. that's what I do. And <laughs> I was thinking about the idea of locus of control. Mm-hmm. So this is a, a psychology theory introduced in the 1950s by Julian Rotter. And it's really about how our belief systems um, sort of motivate us. Mm-hmm. So if you believe you're in control of your own fate, then you have an internal locus of control. Mm-hmm. But if you're looking outside of yourself, like to fate or God or destiny or some kind of external force, then you have an external locus of control. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so the question becomes, how does that belief system then drive your choices? Yeah. And I thought it was really interesting to compare Spike's motivation and Angel's motivation in this episode. Yeah. And I won't say this is true for the two of them all the time, but in this scenario, mm-hmm. I saw like Spike as being externally motivated. He was right. looking for power outside of himself that would make him invincible and allow him to shed the constraints of vampire life. Mm-hmm. And he searches for that in the form of this fabled ring, this fairy tale, this holy grail, you know, of the vampires. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's snarky and irreverent and edgy and charming, you know, while also being soulless and evil. 
But Spike doesn't really serve a higher purpose. Like, he's Mm -hmm. not motivated to cause an apocalypse or further the cause of a cosmic darkness. He's watching out for number one, wanting what he wants, and not planning as carefully as he should because (laughs) passion in the moment drives him. But he's looking outside of himself for power. Yeah. Whereas Angel is internally motivated, driven by his need for atonement, wanting to serve the greater good, struggling with his demons, but he's not looking outside of himself for comfort or for help. Mm-hmm. And when he has the chance to become invincible, he turns it down. Yeah. And he hides the ring in the sewer instead of wearing it because for Angel, the battle that he's fighting is his own and there's no one in that arena but him and Angelus and he wants to win his footing on his own strength. He believes in his own power to guide his choices. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And also because the ring that powers him has the potential to also power Angelus. Right. You know, right. so and yeah, he has I find to, that's interesting. Yeah, he has to take that weight. And then finally, in this episode, we get Angel as Angel instead yeah. of Angel as Batman. Mm-hmm. You know, there's no gadgets. He doesn't take the supernatural ring. He's relying on his own power and strength. He's tested through temptation and torture. Mm-hmm. He holds on to himself on both counts. He defines his purpose and his place in the world and confesses to the thing he wants most, which is forgiveness. Right, which speaks to that idea that you brought up in City Of, that this is a show about atonement. Yeah. Right? At least it is right now. <laughs> At least it is right now. I think it gets more complicated as we go. But yeah, but we're really kind of, that's one of the themes that we're always going to go back to for Angel, mm-hmm. you know. Yep. Um, and Spike, I think, is a great villain. My moment of perfect happiness is the second Spike walks on the scene when he's yeah. looking down on uh, on Angel and, you know, and providing the much needed dialogue for everything that he yeah. sees is kind of adorable. <laughs> no, no, don't touch the hair, right? Right. <laughs> it's so um, good. And, you know, a minor spoiler, not a big one, but a minor spoiler. Like, this is the last time that we get to see Spike as an uncomplicated villain, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's really fun watching him in that mode. I really, really enjoy that. He's about to go do some very interesting stuff over on Buffy and get much more complicated, which is really fun. And I absolutely adore it. But it's really great to see him in this mode. Yeah, it really is. Mm-hmm. And not only did we get Spike, we also got Oz. Oz! Oz! Oh, God. I love Oz. Mm-hmm. Like, this episode was like a snarky, sparkly, pretty super hot birthday present. And right. I just wish Oz had stayed on as a permanent character on Angel. You know, that laconic werewolf musician thing. I just love it. And I would have loved to have seen him join Team Angel. I would have loved that, too. Oh, my God. That would have been wonderful. I love Oz in this episode is so great. He is so good. He's got these like I love it when he's driving the van. He's got two crossbows. Yeah. (laughs) And he's a good shot, too. I mean, if Marcus hadn't been wearing the ring like he would have gotten him, you know. Um, So, I mean, that was really nice. Um, I, I love the whole, you know, no, usually we're laconic, like everything that that Oz does, everything that he says, how he's so cool all the time. Mm-hmm. Like, I love mm-hmm. that coolness. And the thing is with Oz, like if you have a character who's too cool, you know, it gets to be a bit much after a while. He feels untouchable. But there is something in Oz that is always also deeply connected you know, like he doesn't express things very much, but you can see that he feels things very deeply. Yeah. And that yes. gives him a vulnerability that just is such a perfect combination with that character. I absolutely love him. 
I love Oz so much. Mm-hmm. But but the beginning of this, yes. we have Spike basically doing Mystery Science Theater 3000 right. on Angel. <laughs> like, that was made yeah. specifically to delight me. Oh, when yeah. he said, no need, little lady. Your tears of gratitude are enough for me. <laughs> like, can, we, can we please get a show that is just Spike ad-libbing every episode of Angel? Oh, yeah. I know. It's so fantastic. And I love when he does that. And the thing is, is that typically like the evil monologue, I'm going to, you know, come and show you who's like, you know, when they, they talk to themselves about everything they're going to do and how bad they really are. You know, um, it's usually annoying, but Spike does it in such a beautiful way. And it is so much fun. And I mean, some of the stuff that I ordinarily don't like, like I hate the gay jokes. Yeah. I hate that I'm just going to work up a magnificent amount of sexual tension and then, you know, pull, and then run off like a poof or something like that, like he says, which is a terrible word. And I'm very, very sorry. I'm just quoting Spike, but it's a bad word. Don't use it. Um, kids don't say that at home. Um, and so all that kind of stuff, like those those kinds of jokes don't really appeal to me. But the fact that Spike is saying them, he is a bad guy. So the fact that he's saying them is like it's OK that he's saying them because we're not putting a stamp of approval on them by giving them to a good person <laughs> like it's it's spike right. and he's evil and awful so it actually it actually works and it's it's funny because it's spike um and so i don't know like i i love all of it i love every moment of spike on the screen i think he's just fantastic i do too and when he ambushes angel in the parking garage <laughs> and he's like what your angel vamp detective now what's next vampire cowboy vampire fireman <laughs> and i was just <laughs> so good up it's It's so good good. Um, so there was this humor and the snark and you know all of that in the play between spike and angel which was great but the other perfect moment of happiness for Mm me was angel smiling in the sunlight just for that one moment it was so lovely it was so beautiful and you just want him to be able to to stay there you know it just it was so well done it's nice that he gets that experience, you know, and seeing his amazement and how he is living in the moment so much right there. I mean, I have expected him to become Angelus just from that, you know, it's not about the yeah. orgasm. It's about that moment of perfect that happiness. That moment of perfect happiness. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And to feel the sun on his skin after 200 years. I mean, my God, you know, it's got to be incredible. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I thought that that was, was really, really good. Um, and, but then, you know, even in a good episode, there are still things to stake And I have to say, as much as I love Spike, when Spike first sees Cordelia again and says, hey, Cordelia, did you lose weight? Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Just again, it's so irritating. And I know that it's supposed to be funny and that it is this kind of thing that people who've been friends for a long time and are seeing each other again, it's the kind of thing that they would say. And that's where the joke is. But just this idea that Cordelia in any way, you know, I mean, she's never had an ounce of fat on her at all. And if she had lost weight, it would probably not be healthy for her, you know. Um, But I mean, also the idea that the first thing that when you're talking to a woman, the first thing that you comment on is her appearance, you know, mm-hmm. that that's the most important thing about a woman. And I feel like we're getting this message over and over and over again, that the best thing, the most important thing, the most valuable thing about a woman is her appearance. And I just, it, it just clunked really hard for me. Yeah, it did me too. I did not like that line mm-hmm. at all. 
But if if I'm going to start staking things on this episode, I'm starting with Marcus. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> pedophilia is a disturbing theme in this episode. And it's one we're going to revisit at least twice more on Angel in future episodes. Mm-hmm. So... As the third episode of season one, I think In the Dark leans back into the Buffy series by bringing in Oz and Spike, but it also marks Angel as a different kind of show with the inclusion of this dark and disturbing side of evil, you know, because torture's bad enough, mm-hmm. but torture plus pedophilia, like, it's just not, this is this is a whole new thing, and it, yeah. it was dark, and it was disturbing, and, and I hated him a lot. Yeah, it's incredibly dark. And and that is something that Angel does. I mean, Angel sets itself apart from Buffy in that it goes to places that Buffy usually doesn't go to. Um, Buffy Mm -hmm. doesn't get dark like that until we get to season seven um, over there. But um, but this kind of darkness is is kind of it is sort of shocking you know um but on top of it like marcus doesn't work for me for a lot of reasons but one of them is because i think the actor who plays him is really miscast i mean the guy looks like anthony edwards you know who is the the sweet beta male you know the classic sweet beta male and while there's kind of something about that dissonance that works and i think that that's what they were going for with this casting choice like i can't take him seriously as a bad guy you know, yeah. he he's he's gross, but I don't believe for a moment that he would be able to torture Angel and the Angel wouldn't just kill him, you know, in like a second. So, yeah, Marcus didn't work for me on a lot of levels as written and also, you know, um, those specific elements, which are uh, which felt totally just kind of off, especially for this episode, which has a great deal of humor. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And I hate torture scenes anyway. Yeah. I just, I can't watch them. I know. And I mean, the, the torture thing, I guess, was part of the story, but I just, I have a hard time with it. I don't, I, I just, I have to close my eyes. When we yeah, no, it's pretty terrible. Watch it. mm-hmm. um, but then we also get this, you know, we get the, the ob- objectification of Cordelia, but then we also get some unbalanced stereotypes against men here mm-hmm. when right. Doyle's trying to open the bottle of aspirin because his head's hurting from the visions and Cordelia says I think the trick is laying off the ale before you start quoting Angela's ashes and weeping like a baby man mm-hmm. well first of all Angela's ashes made me weep and have nightmares yes. so go easy Cordelia and let's not keep stereotyping men as weak because they cry Right, like that was just sort of mean spirited and I didn't like it um, but the biggest thing other than Marcus for me that Mm -hmm. I would stake is why isn't Angel wearing the damn ring since he knows Spike is after him (laughs) I mean this is just common sense like if a bad guy is after you and your friends and you have a ring that makes you invincible you'll wear the damn ring Right. You know, at least for this, like, I I kind of understand it. We're going to talk about that in just a little bit, like the reasoning at the end for why he doesn't. Um, But, you know, why when Oz comes in with the car and throws the ring to distract Spike, right? Why mm-hmm. does he throw the actual gem of Amara? Why doesn't he? He's got like a couple of rings on that look like yeah. about the same kind of like he could just take one of those rings off, switch it out, throw that at them and then rush out while they're looking before they discover that it's just a, a skull and crossbones ring, you know, or whatever. Right. right? Um, right. So that also didn't make a whole lot of sense. Although given the circumstance that here we are, we're in this heightened situation, you know, Oz didn't exactly wake up this morning expecting to have to like, you know, deal with a, a pedophiliac, you 
you know, um, sadist uh, vampire. So I guess I can kind of understand that. But at the same time, like, you know, Oz grew up on the Hellmouth. This isn't exactly new to him. Like, you know, yeah. I think he would, and Oz, especially, who is cool in every circumstance, I think that Oz would never throw the actual gem of Amara at Spike. No, you know, Oz just would be smart happen. enough to have a decoy. Like, it yeah, was exactly. just ridiculous. Exactly. And then we see Spike breaking into Angel's place and searching for the ring. And mm-hmm. he's like, if I was a ring, where would I be? I'm going, I would be on Angel's damn finger. Like, right. <laughs> but Spike like, does know. No Spike knows him yeah. really well. So he may, like, you know, he may have known. That's true. Yeah. And then I kind of wondered about the invitation rule. So apparently vampires don't need invitations from each other. Mm-hmm. to come into their homes yeah nobody needs an invitation to get into yeah. angel's home i mean kate didn't in lonely hearts you know <laughs> she just wa- she didn't need an invitation she didn't need a warrant open for everyone yes <laughs> yeah exactly i just thought i just thought that was interesting yeah so it's just it's humans it's humans mm. and it's only applicable with vampires it's it's very interesting how that those metaphysics exactly work um but one of the things too that i really wanted to stake is that as much as i love this episode and i do i love it mostly for the moments with spike and with oz and you know and there's a lot of fun stuff going on but we completely lose our narrative momentum halfway through when we switch to marcus as the bad guy we just completely abandon spike you know Mm -hmm. we should have had spike with the ring spike in the sunlight you know, picking out a, a, a victim, which is something that Spike would absolutely be doing, you know. Um, oh, yeah. And I mean, of course, it does stretch credulity that Spike would live to see another day. But we've done that a million times over on Buffy. Like the reason that Spike is alive <laughs> is because everybody loves Spike. Uh, it is a narrative reason why he's alive, not an actual reason like within the story that makes sense. Um, but Spike, you know, is is a trickster hero. He would live to see another day. You know, he would mm-hmm. get the the ring to Angel somehow and and manage to get away. But this real this final fight shouldn't have been about Marcus. Marcus shouldn't have been torturing angel this should have been spike all along there should have never been a marcus involved in this you know spike should have been doing everything right but that kind of goes back to spike's motivation he gives away his agency he gives that power to marcus yeah and what i really wanted to see was spike be the bad guy throughout no marcus spike tortures angel they fight spike finds a way to get away but while angel ends up with the ring Spike steals Angel's car right. and uses that for his getaway. And that's how he <laughs> that cuts back to Sunny. So happy. <laughs> oh, I, just I love the Batmobile. It. Yeah. Yes. Spike could have stolen the Batmobile. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then we kind of get to like the big philosophical question of the episode where at the end Angel just decides to destroy the ring. Mm-hmm. And he says, the daytime people have help. They don't see the weak ones lost in the night or the things that prey on them. And if I join them, maybe I'll stop seeing them too. But I, it it seemed to me like he was in that context, sort of giving up the ring as punishing himself or like he couldn't accept it because it was from Buffy and he can't accept that love from her. It was just, it was twisted up in a way. There were good reasons for destroying that ring, but they weren't the reasons he said. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there could be some really good reasons, but the reason he gave is stupid. No, I just need to suffer. I need for it to be hard. It has to be hard. It has to be harder. You know, like I, 
I think he should give up the ring. Part of the reason from a narrative point of view is that we don't want him to have that much power. Again, as I said before, you've got to have a balance of power. Um, You can't let the power differential get too far off. And so you've got vampires with huge amounts of power. You need to have those consequences. You need to have them be vulnerable in some ways, you know. And if he was wearing the ring, he would be unkillable. Right. And we can't have that. We've got to have there be real true danger for Angel. So there are narrative really strong reasons for giving up the ring. There are also story world reasons for giving up the ring. One of them being, as I mentioned before, he can be turned back into Angelus and he doesn't know at any moment when that's going to happen. And the power that he takes for himself, he also takes for Angelus and that could be incredibly dangerous. Another thing is that forget it getting to Angelus. Like what if another vampire manages to take his ring off, you know, sneaks in right. while he's sleeping, doesn't need an invitation, obviously no security system. So, um, you know, I mean, there's like a million different reasons why right. this thing is too powerful. It shouldn't be out there. It shouldn't be allowed to exist because it can create too much damage, you know? So, but then do you yeah. have to wonder, like there wasn't a Mount Doom, huge volcano to throw right. this ring in, right? <laughs> right. And it, it, it's so powerful that it makes vampires invincible. But Angel can smash it with a rock. Right, exactly. But like, just smash it with a rock and it's completely like, done, right? You should have done. to throw it into a, into a volcano or something. But, I mean, really. Yeah, but that would be a whole other you know, three hour thing, we'd have to get Peter Jackson and some hobbits and it would just be very complicated. So I guess, the you know, fellowship of the angel, the fellowship awesome. of the angel. Right. But even if he had like, even if he had to gather like a, you know, like a special thing from the magic shop and, and do a spell to depower mm-hmm. it or something like that, like, you know, you can give him a, a couple of, you know, um, like, you know, smoke and fire and whatever in a little um, canister or something and like have that be the thing that kills the Gemara. But at least, you know, but I guess we're going for the speed. We're just, you know, getting it out of the way and taking care of it. So I guess that makes sense. But I I found it to be um, to be a little bit you know, too much. It was it was just an annoying reason. There were lots of good reasons to destroy it. And he didn't mention a single one of them. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, all right. Bring us into research mode. What are your unanswered questions from In the Dark? Okay. So, we had a side story in this that was ultimately another pretty girl with a bad boyfriend mm-hmm. thing that just seems to keep recurring in Angel. Um, but the, so this girl, Rachel, is addicted to her mm-hmm. boyfriend, Lenny. And they, they talk about addiction a lot in this episode. Yeah. An angel tells her, you're at a crossroads. It's easier to go for the easy fix and wait for the consequences, or you can take the hard road and go with faith. Right. And so I was just really curious about what kind of faith he's talking about. Um, She asks if he's from the church, and he says, no. What does angel have faith in other than himself, and what did he mean by that for Rachel? So I was just, it it was deep dialogue that they didn't really explore. Yeah, they didn't quite land it, I don't think. But he does say, you know, I mean, faith in yourself. And it's interesting when you when you go back to that locus of control that you were talking about earlier, that the angel's locus of control is internal. It's all Mm -hmm. about him. You know, it's all about his his own power to to like handle himself, you know. Um, So I find that kind of interesting. But yeah, like we we kind of step into this space 
with it. And yeah. it is a little awkward and it doesn't sound like an angel thing to say. Um, so for me, the first thing I thought about was Faith the Slayer, right? Who at this yeah. point in the story is in a hospital in Sunnydale in a coma. But it felt like a real call out to Faith you know, to the, to the character of faith, um, because it is so kind of awkwardly wedged in there in a way that doesn't really make sense. So yeah, I don't know. It, it didn't, it didn't really work for me. No, it didn't me either. Although I would like it if it was actually a call out to faith. Yeah. The Slayer. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then we get this line from Marcus. He's when he's torturing, he's talking about torture and he discovers Angel has a soul. Like, sometimes he can just tell. I don't know how he can tell, but he can tell. Yeah. And he said, creatures with souls have something to lose. Mm-hmm. Well, what do they have to lose besides their souls? Like, right. it, it was, like, what are they trying to say about the nature of the human soul here? And how does that relate to torture? It was like they right. were trying to make him you know, like deep or metaphysical or somehow connected to Angel's mind. And I just don't think they pulled it off. Right. Um, And you're saying that these people, like these vampires, you know, without a soul or demons, that they have nothing to lose. But they always, you know, they have something because they they lose in the end in the battle. You know, they want something. They're trying to go for something. And then they do have something to lose. So, yeah, it does feel like, oh, let's put this in because it's really, really deep. But in the end, like it doesn't actually, what does it actually mean? Right. And and yeah. the way that they talked about addiction, like you would think it would have come up for Angel, but Angel has shown over and over again that he is capable of giving up the things that mm-hmm. he wants and loves. He's walked away from Buffy. He yeah. destroys this ring. He's given up sunlight and invincibility. He's given up human blood. I mean, yeah. Angela smokes, but Angel doesn't. Like, mm-hmm. hence all the poetic, tormented brooding. Mm-hmm. But the addiction theme just didn't really seem to fit with mm-hmm. the rest of the, the show and the characters. Um, and again, we have this, you know, this curse where Angel and Angelus have the same body and the same memories, mm-hmm. but different personalities. And Angelus does not have a soul while Angel does. Yeah. So this, for me, opened the question of where does the mind end and the soul begin? Right. What is the line between the soul and personality between what makes us human and what makes us monsters? And I think this is a really interesting question that Angel as a series explores. That absolutely is. And that's something we're going to be coming back to a lot. Yeah. Yeah. What is this? What is this line? And what does that mean? That's really very cool. Oh, I like that. Yeah. All right. Well, our one to brood on for this. Why is this episode a watcher? I mean, because Spike, right? (laughs) I mean, that's really all you need, right? And because Oz, you know, um, both of them being wonderful. It's written by Douglas Petrie, who is honestly one of the best writers ever. And even with the the narrative stumbles that we have where we we switch antagonists midstream and the second antagonist is not nearly as good and it really should have been all about Spike – Even with all of that, this episode is just really, really good. And it also shows what we can do with Angel, you know, and the kinds of things that we can do with Angel. So I think that it is well worth being a watcher. um, And I I highly recommend it to everybody. it's a great episode. Um, so, okay, that brings us to the end. Here we are. <laughs> the end of the first episode is still dead. And uh, this is the part where out of all the episodes, out of everything that we've watched, we're each going to pick out what our favorite part was. And Kelly, what was your favorite part out of all three episodes? 
So my favorite part was Spike's monologue when he said, You see, I was once a badass vampire, but love and a pesky curse defanged me. No, not the hair. Never the hair. Quickly to the angel would be away. Like, <laughs> words cannot describe my love for Spike. Oh, yeah. I just want to watch him smoke and snark. Yes. And yes, I know he's evil. But in the words of Harmony, he's my platinum baby and I love him. <laughs> Oh, man. So, yeah, Harmony is another you? one. We're going to have that discussion oh, sometime yeah. soon, too. Um, all right. Well, I have to say I was torn between Spike's evil monologue and another moment. So I'm glad that you picked the evil monologue because that opens up for me. The other moment, which, of course, is badass angry angel saying, can you fly? I love yeah. that. I love when he kicks him out <laughs> so the window. Good. It is so fantastic. And it is honestly one of my favorite moments from the whole run of the series, let alone these three. It's just fantastic. So I really love it. And it's been a lot of fun talking about these episodes today. I am very excited about Still Dead. And if you are also excited to join in the discussion on Twitter, follow me at Lonnie Diane Rich and Kelly at Dr. Kelly Jones and use the hashtag Still Dead. But the best place for all the great discussion and people are going to be answering our unanswered questions, um, which is going to be really, really fun, is the Patreon Discord chat. Just $1 a month of support gets you in with some of the smartest angel geeks around. This episode of Still Dead was brought to you by Chipperish Media producer Pam. Pam supports Chipperish Media at the power producer level and as a reward gets to produce whatever show she wants. So thank you, Pam, and thank you to everyone who supports Chipperish Media and makes all of this possible. Visit patreon.com slash chipperish to find out how you too can become a Still Dead producer. We will be back next time with episodes four and five of Angels Season 1, I Fall to Pieces, an absolute skipper, and Room <laughs> with a View, which is a watcher. And until then, you have a few surprises coming your way. The Ring of Amara, a visit from your old pal Spike, and oh yeah, your gruesome, horrible death.